Almighty God, you promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So I draw your attention to the sermon outline. It's on page 11 in your bulletin. And Roman number one, we begin with a multiple choice question. What do you think? The resurrection of Jesus is his vindication, it's his approval in the sight of God, primarily in the eyes of A, Pontius Pilate and the Roman government, B, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that condemned him, C, those who mocked him, D, the disciples. What do you think? Various answers? Well, I would say it's probably D, okay? At least that's the direction our sermon text, the, the gospel reading, points us. For example, in verse five, the angel says to the women, and they are disciples as well, and he totally ignores the guards. I mean, they're like dead men. He says, don't be afraid, you seek Jesus, the crucified one. He is risen, he is not here. Go tell his disciples that he is risen and that he will see them in Galilee. So the announcement then is for the disciples. The angel does not command the women to say anything to Pontius Pilate or to go to the Sanhedrin and inform them of this good news. The angel does not command the women to go to those who mocked Jesus while he hung on the cross and tell them the good news. The angel commands them to speak this good news to the disciples alone. Because the disciples, more than anyone else, needed to know that Christ was raised. You see, they were caught in the middle of a controversy between Jesus on the one hand and the Jewish authorities on the other. And the controversy was this. Are you the son of God, as you claim, or not? That's the controversy. And Jesus appeared to lose the argument. He was publicly disgraced and put to death by the establishment. He was finished in the eyes of the people. And the disciples must have felt as if they had bet on the wrong horse. In fact, in Luke 24, as two disciples are going to Emmaus, one of them says this, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Notice the past tense, we had hoped in him. They speak of their hope in the past tense. They no longer believe in him. More than anyone else, they needed to know that Jesus had God's approval. More than anyone else, they needed to know that God raised him from the dead. Because without them, 
there would be no Great Commission at the end of our Gospel reading. Without them, there would be no making disciples of all nations. More than anyone else, it was the disciples who had to be converted to Christ. Roman numeral two. The Passion narrative is the disciples' public confession of sins. It's their public confession of sins. And confession, by the way, in the early church was always public. It wasn't private, it was public. And it was always cast in this way. It, it was a public request for forgiveness from the congregation. Now we do this every Lord's Day at the beginning of the divine service. We do it during the season of Lent on Wednesday evenings with the Compline services. In the Compline service, I publicly confess my sinfulness to the congregation and I ask mercy from the congregation, forgiveness from them. And the congregation speaks God's forgiveness to me. And then we switch it. Okay, the congregation acknowledges its guilt and seeks forgiveness from me, through me, from the Lord. That's how it works. So my point is simply this. Throughout the Passion Narratives, in all four Gospels, the disciples are making, in so many words, a public confession of their failure and their own need of forgiveness. And I think we can all relate to that. Letter A, the disciples were slow to believe. You find throughout the Gospel narratives, they never get it. They're puzzled by what Jesus is saying and doing. They don't understand his ways because God's ways are far above our own. And they're weak. They demonstrate that in the garden when our Lord was suffering his great agony. Jesus asked his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to stay awake and pray alongside him, even for one hour, to provide emotional and spiritual support. But they failed even at that. They were not available for Jesus in his hour of need. And let her be, they were in conflict. They were in conflict with Jesus over the nature of his ministry, throughout his ministry. Whatever the disciples expected of Jesus, it was not that he should suffer and die. They would not accept that. And they proved it by abandoning him when it was clear to them that that's what he was going to do. He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He was actually going through with it. And when that became evident, they would have nothing more to do with him. They all, we, we read, they forsook him and they fled. They abandoned him. And, and it's amazing. One of the reasons why we take these passion narratives as true history is that they're so transparent. I mean, people don't normally write this way. They, they will paint themselves in a positive light, not these disciples. They're very transparent about their failure. You know why? Because they know they're forgiven. And you can be transparent about your failure when you know you're already forgiven. But to the point, not only do the disciples refuse to accept a suffering Savior, they actively oppose it. Not only does Peter rebuke Jesus when Jesus first announces his mission to suffer and die and rise in Jerusalem, but later on in the garden, 
Peter will draw his own sword to prevent that very thing. And all the while, he thinks he's doing God's work when he's really doing the devil's. As Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Roman numeral three. The resurrection reveals God's approval of Jesus. His approval of Jesus. Now the world, on the one hand, rendered its own judgment on Jesus. That was a judgment of condemnation. But God rendered his own judgment of Jesus at the resurrection. It was his vindication, his defense from God to the world. And Paul states it this way in Romans chapter 1. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. The Sanhedrin put Jesus to death for claiming to be God's Son. God reversed that decision and declared him to be his own son by raising him up. And by raising Jesus, God demonstrated his own approval of Christ's ministry because Christ's ministry was summed up by Christ himself in these words. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his work. That's his mission. So the resurrection shows that God accepts Christ's self-sacrifice in payment for all of our sins. And that's why Paul will write in Romans chapter 4, Christ was put to death for our sins and he was raised up for our justification. Now that is the meaning of the resurrection for us. And the disciples would eventually come to that same conclusion. The resurrection meant that Jesus had been right all along. During all the time, the disciples had been doubting him and opposing him. And because Jesus was in the right about giving his life as a ransom for many, we've been ransomed from our sins. We've been ransomed from everlasting death. We are forgiven. And it is my responsibility and my joy every Lord's Day to tell you that. You are forgiven, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did, completed, and finished for you through his death and resurrection. Roman numeral four. The resurrection is the disciples' absolution. It is their absolution or forgiveness. Letter A, God cannot tolerate sin because he's just. If he tolerated sin, he would be unjust, not just. And therefore, when he relates to sinners like you and I, he does so through forgiveness. That's how he relates to us. God deals with our debts by paying them himself. He gives his own life as our ransom. So if God is to relate to us at all, he must deal with our sins, and the good news is he has. Point number one, the angel says, go tell the disciples. Now, that sounds pretty positive in and of itself. Because if they're still his disciples after repeated failure, that's absolution. That's forgiveness. But it gets better. Jesus says in verse 10 to the women, go and tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. Notice, they're not only disciples. They are now his brothers. That is forgiveness. That is absolution on steroids. And point number two, sinners, 
Sinners gather around the forgiving presence of the Lord. The tax collectors and prostitutes had been doing that throughout his ministry. And now the disciples appropriately are doing it as well at the end of our gospel reading, verses 16 through 20. And they are commissioned to go to the world. That is forgiveness. They will carry on his work. That is absolution. Now they are equipped to disciple others to Jesus because they finally get it. They finally begin to understand who Jesus is. He is the crucified and risen Lord, and because he is crucified for us and risen for us, he is the forgiving Lord. That's who he is. Jesus has been their teacher in the school of experience, which is the best school there is. They have been schooled in the experience of God's mercy. And now they know him as the forgiving Lord that he is. Now they know their relationship with Jesus is not based on their ability to do everything right, but on his ability to forgive their every wrong and ours. That is maturity. Spiritual maturity says that if you're going to walk with God, forgiveness is the ground you must walk on. Spiritual maturity says if you want to live in the presence of the Lord, Forgiveness is the air you must breathe. We are God's forgiven children. Forgiveness earned by our Lord at the cross and guaranteed to us by the empty tomb. Martin Luther said that the true church is crammed with the forgiveness of sins. All of us need that kind of church, my friends. And in this church, We don't merely talk about forgiveness. We do forgiveness to you every Lord's Day in the absolution spoken by the minister at the beginning of the service, remembering our baptisms, partaking of the Holy Supper. The place is crammed with the forgiveness of sins. And my friends, you are called to speak that forgiveness to one another at home. You're called to speak that forgiveness to your co-workers, to your classmates, whoever it may be, to whom it will apply, you're called to speak the same message privately in your personal lives. My friends, letter B, we close on this. Christ builds his church despite our failures. Despite our, our failures will not prevent him from showing mercy. By his triumph alone, he builds his church. He's earned forgiveness there at the cross and it's guaranteed to us through his empty tomb. To God alone be the glory, honor, and praise through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.